0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Hey everybody, welcome back. Now just a heads up, today's episode will actually be a repost from the interview that I did with Gabe Brown from Brown's Ranch in North Dakota from last season. Now I'm doing a lot of research these days on the regeneration potential of land through arable crops for some of the clients that I have and Gabe's work over the last 20 years really stands out as an incredible example of this kind of potential. I've been revisiting his work and his teachings as well as his book, Dirt to Soil, and the main principles in it. Like any other success story, it's worth taking special care to understand the mindset and the decision-making process more than any individual technique or practice that these people implemented. This interview, I think, is a great peek into the mind that took a hard turn against the common practices around him, and remained incredibly tenacious through a challenging transition process to more regenerative and ecologically aligned management. So I'll start things off with the original introduction. A lot of the farms that come to mind when I think of regenerative agriculture are smaller, more diverse, and quite intensive, many with different crops and animals working in closer proximity with many stacked functions and a niche business model. But what can be done for all of those vast fields of monoculture plantings like corn, soy, and wheat that take up so much space in the heartland of the Midwestern and Western U.S.? Are there regenerative solutions for these massive farms with thousands of acres? Is there hope for farming the plains and savannas through ecological management? For answers to these questions, I reached out to Gabe Brown of Brown's Ranch in North Dakota. A historically challenging environment for agriculture, North Dakota is a place dominated today by massive cattle ranches and monocultures stretching beyond the horizon of dry and windy plains. But in this challenging environment, Gabe has been a pioneer of the soil health movement and has been named one of the 25 most influential agricultural leaders in the United States. Gabe, his wife Shelly, and son Paul own Brown's Ranch, a holistic, diversified 5,000-acre farm and ranch near Bismarck, North Dakota. The Brown's integrate their grazing and no-till cropping systems, which include cash crops and multi-species cover crops, along with all-natural grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork, and laying hens. The Brown family have received numerous awards, including a Growing Green Award from the Natural Resources Defense Council, an Environmental Stewardship Award from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, and the USA Zero-Till Farmer of the Year Award. In this interview, I asked Gabe about how he managed to persevere through some very challenging years in the beginning to develop the diversified and healthy landscape that his family manages today. He also tells me a lot about the invisible challenges to his way of farming, such as the counterproductive incentives of the U.S. Farm Bill and the cultural stigma that can be difficult when making unconventional changes to your farming practices. We also dig into some of the crucial advice that Gabe has for farmers looking to make a transition to regenerative agriculture from industrial management. Now, this interview gave me a lot of hope that the American plains can be restored without risking food shortages or spikes in food costs. I really hope that any of you listening to this will share this episode with someone who you know who works in farming or perhaps hasn't heard of these possibilities, or who thinks that their mechanized monoculture operations can't be converted or don't lend themselves to ecological transformation. So with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Gabe Brown. Hey Gabe, thank you so much for making time to be on the podcast today. I've got so many questions because of all of the experience and the success that you've had through regenerative farming methods and that you've been such a powerful voice, especially in the Midwest and people with larger acreage who are looking to implement this on traditional or industrial farming methods. So what do you say we just get down to the questions? Sure. All right. So look, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your personal background and what got you interested in managing your land in what was quite an alternative way when you first started?
1: Okay. So I did not grow up on a farmer ranch. I grew up in town. And I became interested in agriculture when I was in high school and started working on farms. Then I went off to the university and I actually was going to be a agricultural education instructor, in other words, a teacher. And as luck would have it, I married my high school sweetheart and she was from a farm and she has two sisters, but her uh, no brothers. So her parents asked us if we'd be interested in moving back to the to the farm and perhaps taking it over. And so once I graduated from college, that's what we did. We moved back to the farm and I actually learned how to farm from my father-in-law. He farmed very conventionally. In other words, it was a lot of tillage and, and uh, synthetic fertilizers, uh, monoculture, small grain production. Not a lot of diversity, and that 's how I learned to farm. Well, I started renting some land on my own, and I farmed just like he did. Then we ended up purchasing a part of the farm from them in nineteen ninety one and and I continued to farm that way. Then, what happened was a series of natural disasters. Um, well, I should step back for a second. What happened in nineteen ninety four I had read a lot about no-till, and in our environment, moisture is, is fairly limited. We get approximately 16 inches of total precipitation a year, and I knew that I could save and conserve some moisture by going no-till. So I purchased a no-till drill and went to 100% no-till. I just jumped in. I had to sell my tillage equipment in order to be able to afford that no-till drill, so I was totally bought in, and we started no-tilling. Then what happened, 1995, we were no-tilling, I started to diversify the crop rotation a little bit, we lost 100% of our crop to hail, and so I had no crop income. 1996 came along, and we lost 100% of our crop to hail again. 1997 came along and we dried out. It was very limited moisture. Nobody combined anything in our area. So I was three years of no no grain income. I did have a few beef cattle, so was making a little bit of money that way. But obviously, the banker wasn't going to loan me money anymore because I hadn't paid him back yet. I was thankful that he didn't foreclose on me. 1998 came along and we lost 80% of our crop to hail. So those four years of natural disaster uh, were really teaching me some lessons. And I tell people that laid the foundation. It forced me to learn how ecosystems function and how can I make this land productive without all these added inputs, without buying the commercial fertilizers and pesticides and fungicides and everything else. And I tell people in my book, it was really a journey. And it's a a never-ending learning experience. I'm learning new things every year. But the more I observed nature and learned how nature functions, the more I realized that my task as a farmer, as a rancher, was to be a good steward of the land and figure out how can I work best with nature instead of against her.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's a, a common motivation for a lot of people who are looking to make this change in the way that they're managing their their land. Now, going back to your initial motivations for, for switching over to no-till, you said because you're in an area with such restricted precipitation, that no-till made sense to conserve more moisture in the ground. But then it was followed by those four years of disaster how did you start to get the feedback that this was the way to go when you didn't have a crop to to show any results for that amount of time? What what sort of made you persevere past this this disaster?
1: That's a very good question. And looking back now, I realized that what was really happening was I was seeing the principles laid out before me. Okay, I'd already been... Uh, gone down the no-till path so least amount of mechanical disturbance possible because I got hailed out there was no need to apply the herbicides and so that's another part of the first principle least amount of mechanical chemical disturbance possible Then the hailstorms were actually laying down tremendous amount of biomass onto the soil surface just through the hail actually pounding that, above ground biomass down onto the surface. Well, that's the second principle, armoring the soil. Then what was also happening, realize I had a herd of beef cattle, I needed to feed them. Well, I started to grow forage crops specifically for feed for the livestock. Crops such as sorghum sedangrass and cowpeas and, and alfalfa and, and millets. And so I was adding diversity at that time. Uh, That is the third principle. Then what happened after the hail storms, hail beat the crop down. I needed forage for the livestock. I'd scrape together a little money, buy some millet and cowpea seed, seed that. Well, what I was doing was adding a living root into the soil as long as possible throughout the year. Then I would graze that in late fall and winter with livestock. So those are the fourth and fifth principles. So I was really learning the lesson of these principles of a healthy soil ecosystem.
0: It seems like not having an income from the crop still gave you a lot of very quick feedback as to how closing the loops in your systems on the farm were adding to the overall value and the resilience of the land, if I'm understanding you
1: correctly. That's exactly right. The other thing I was seeing uh, is that all of a sudden there were earthworms in my soil. Mm. Well, my father-in-law, I tell people that my father-in-law practiced recreational tillage. He'd go and till just for the fun of it. He enjoyed doing that. And you'd never see an earthworm in any of our soils. Well, now, because I had been no-till, no disturbance, because the soil was covered, because there was little all of a sudden the soil was coming back to life and it wasn't only below ground uh, insects biology like earthworms it was above ground also this this farm here we used to never see deer on the farm all of a sudden i was starting to see deer and pheasants and grouse and all these bird populations and they were coming for a reason the reason was there was habitat for them so I started noticing a lot more life and I tell people it's much more enjoyable working with life than with death. So that was a, you know, obviously the lack of income was a struggle, uh, but I was noticing enough positive changes that I felt confident I was headed down the right path.
0: Hmm. Yeah. All of those indicators must have been a real encouragement despite the lack of income. So look, one of the things that I hear about a lot from people who especially have worked on degraded land and attempt to regenerate the health of the soil, uh, especially places that have seen prolific tillage for many years, is that the soil can develop quite a hard pan just below the surface of where the tillage has been. Has that been a big issue in the way that you've had to... Uh, manage or adapt your strategies to repair the health of the soil, especially when it comes to water infiltration and roots being able to get through that hard pan?
1: One of the things I learned early on, well, there was many, many things, but I learned early on that although I had spent four years at the university studying agriculture, I really didn't know agriculture. I learned the chemical and physical components, you know, that soil, sand, silt and clay and that there's nutrients that are needed by a plant. But I did not learn at the university how soil functions. I didn't learn that plants, you know, we all learned it way back that plants through photosynthesis uh, convert sunlight into all these carbon compounds. But I didn't learn that a plant then moves some of those compounds down into its roots and exudes them out into the soil in order to attract biology, in order to to feed the plant the nutrients it needs. I didn't learn how soil aggregates were formed and that an aggregate will only last about 28 days. And if you don't have the biology in the soil and if you don't have mycorrhizal fungi, You're not going to build soil aggregates. If you don't build soil aggregates, you won't be able to infiltrate water. So once I started to learn those things, then it became easy for me to adjust my management to allow those things to happen. So yes, when I quit tillage, there was a hard pan there from the tillage layer, but it didn't take me long to realize that. All I needed to do do was grow a diverse crop rotation, add cover crops, keep armor on the soil. The biology then would build those aggregates and allow water to infiltrate. And in my book, I talk about how uh, we did water infiltration tests on our cropland back in 1991 when I first bought it. And the Water would only infiltrate at a rate of about one half of an inch per hour. Well, this past year, we have it documented on film, where I can now infiltrate an inch of water in nine seconds, and the second inch in an additional 16 seconds. So I took land that was only capable of infiltrating a half inch an hour, and now I can infiltrate two inches in 25 seconds. I mean, that's a tremendous difference. And that what I tell people is anybody can do this. I can do this on any soils anywhere in the world where there's dry land production agriculture. We can do it. It's just a matter of applying the principles. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that's a message that I really want to continue to spread over here on this side of the world. I'm located now in Spain, even though I grew up in the Midwest mostly. And it's been a huge issue, um, especially in the Iberian Peninsula, with the similar annual rainfall levels like you do in North Dakota over there, uh, contributing to desertification. And I still have not seen any real push to start to implement those types of methods, and uh, it's something that I hope to be a part of the movement towards uh, advocating for. Now, to move back a little bit right. to one of the things that you've been a major proponent of is something that you mentioned, the cover crops especially. And <laughs> I love that uh, in, in a few of the the works that I've heard and seen from you, people come to you for specific recipes or mixes for cover crops and you respond by saying, well, you wouldn't ask, <laughs> they wouldn't ask you to pick their spouse. you shouldn't be picking their cover crops either. And that really goes to say just how specific this is to the context and the environment in which everybody is working. That being said, tell us a little bit about some of the ways that you have tried out different varieties and um, figured out what cover crops work for your specific context.
1: That, that's right, and the last word you said, context, is critical. As a matter of fact, we've added the sixth principle and that principle is context. I am 100% positive that the six principles that I talked to you about will work anywhere in the world mm-hmm. where there's dry land agriculture. What is different is the tools we use to put those principles into play. So in, over where you're at, you may not grow the same cash grain crops that I grow. You may not grow the same cover crops because, you know, all climates are different and, and soil types are a bit different and, and humidity and heat and all those factors, growing season, they all have to be taken into account when you determine what it is you grow. Like here in North Dakota, we only have approximately 110 frost free days a year. Well, I'm limited in the amount of warm season species i can use and i certainly cannot use any tropical species in our environment we just don't get hot and enough and we're not wet enough for those so you have to put it in context so what i started doing early on is i would you know i knew millet would grow i knew sedan grass would grow i knew what small grains cool season grasses would grow and then it's constant experimentation and I always tell people, I remember when sun hemp was first uh, introduced into, into the country and I tried some and I tell people that was a real shock because it looked like marijuana growing, you know, and, and people were just amazed that I'd grow such thing. However, it's not a real good fit for my environment because it needs a lot of moisture and it needs a long growing season. We have neither of those. So That one, I don't even bother attempting to grow anymore. We are always on this ranch experimenting with one or two new species every year. And what I tell people is, you know, think of it as a learning experience. And I'm willing to pay for an education, but I'm not going to gamble my whole ranch on it. So we'll try a couple new species every year in a mix just to see how they do. If they fail me once, I will try them again. If they fail me twice, I generally do not try them again. Those that succeed and show promise, then I expand their use the following year. And that makes uh, farming, ranching exciting because you're trying new things. You're seeing new things. So honestly, I have never counted up how many species I've tried. I mean, well over 150 different species, I'm sure. But there's just a small number of those, uh, probably less than 50, that I use on a regular basis. And so you try, you learn, and then you react accordingly.
0: Tell me just for reference what some of those species that you've had real success with are. Because of the really limited context that you're in, they must be pretty hardy.
1: Yeah, so we use a lot of the cool season species because we're in a cool season dominant environment. So species that work are, of course, coarse oats and barley and peas and hairy vetch and winter triticale, cereal, cereal rye. The clovers tend to do real well here. The majority of clovers. Uh, then we will use some millet, some sedan grass, cow peas. Uh, The brassicas work well in our environment. So sunflowers work well. That's just a handful of the ones we use.
0: Mm. Now, another large-scale soil regeneration technique that's really become popular in the last few years, and I know you've implemented in a number of ways, is holistic grazing. Can you tell me a little bit about how you were managing livestock on the farm before changing up the the moving of the grazing and the uh, the larger stocking rates, and how you've seen a transformation not just in obviously the profitability and the ability to manage more livestock, but also the effect that it's had on the soil?
1: Sure. One of the things about me is I, I really enjoy learning, and I'm an avid reader. I read you know, one to two books every week. Avery had come to North America and he was promoting holistic plan grazing. Well, I read about it. It made sense to me. And so on a limited basis, I started doing some cross-fencing, realized I did not own the land at the time. It was slow and a bit difficult to get my father-in-law to believe in it. So I started slowly, just I started rotationally grazing, moving the livestock about once a month. Well, then after we purchased a part of the ranch from them, then I accelerated that and started moving a little more frequently about once a week. And I was pretty comfortable with that. And that's what I was doing through the 90s, early 2000. And then I, had the good fortune that i met neil dennis uh, from canada and neil was grazing up to a million pounds of live weight per acre doing multiple moves per day and i went up to neil's in 2006 and i saw what he was doing and i immediately knew that that was the missing link on my cropland i needed to move more frequently and i needed to integrate high stock density livestock grazing onto the cropland. And so I came home from Neil to integrate high air stock density grazing on cropland. Now today, one of my business partners is Dr. Alan Williams and Dr. Williams is world renowned for his work on on grazing and he uh, prefers to call it AMP grazing, adaptive multi-paddock grazing because you need to be adaptive, you need to observe every day what the animals, what the forage is telling you, how much forage do you have, and then you need to adjust accordingly. And that's the practice that we're using on our ranch today. We vary season of use grazing, we vary stock densities, we vary species of livestock that are grazed, and all of those things go to mimic a natural ecosystem.
0: That's remarkable. And tell me a little bit about the natural ecosystem that you're looking to transition towards and how that fits into the history of land use in your area.
1: So every location has its historical context. What was in that area historically? Well, that's probably where you should start. So for instance, earlier I said, we're a cool season dominant area. So the species that are in our quote, unquote, native pasture now realize what's native, who really knows because it's ever evolving, but we're primarily cool season dominant. 75 to 80% approximately of the forage species, grasses, forbs, and legumes, would be cool season dominant in my area. The other 25 to 30 percent would be warm season so what we uh, what adaptive grazing allows it allows allows for the natural expression of that the seeds are going to germinate that's in the latent seed bank the species are going to thrive that fit that environment and that management i believe that it's not up for me to decide what should be there too many people try and impose their will on nature and say, oh, I don't like that. I, you know, I'm going to go spray that forb, which is what weeds are. They're really forbs for the most part. Whereas why not let them express themselves, use the livestock as a tool to harvest that forage and convert it into dollars. And that's more or less what I look as my mission on being is I'm going to let nature express itself and then work with her accordingly.
0: It's remarkable that this hasn't become more prolific much earlier. It seems to me that closing all of these loops of energy on your land and using them to kind of fill out a a large variety of enterprises can not only make for a more resilient business, but has so many accelerating effects on the regeneration of the landscape, which then offers up so many more ecological benefits without having to pay to put in more work or use machinery or other inputs. Mm. And, you know, the, the whole system grows in health and in life uh, from what you're describing.
1: It, that's exactly right. But realize that that's against the quote unquote norm, the normal. So farmers, ranchers, there's some fear involved because, they're not being taught anywhere these ecological principles. You know, they hear it from their, their seed salesman, their fertilizer salesman, the chemical salesman the implement a dealership. They hear, no, you got to do it this way. Well, they don't know any better. And as I said, four years in the university, I wasn't taught these principles. You know, what we're really doing with regenerative agriculture is we're rediscovering, so to speak, a method of farming and ranching that is centuries old. Mm. But we moved out of that after the Industrial Revolution. Now we're coming back to it because of all the positives that it entails.
0: It's remarkable. Now, The one thing that we've really just focused on up until now is the use of annual and animal methods of regenerating the soil specifically. But tell me how trees and perennials fit into the holistic design of your farm.
1: Sure. So realize, again, the principle of context. I'm here in the northern Great Plains of North America. Unless it's along a riparian area, watershed, river, stream, you don't have trees. So in my context, we're not going to have a lot of trees. But we do have a lot of very diverse grasslands. And on our 5,000-acre ranch, we now have well over 4,000 acres of perennial grasslands. And they're very diverse. Uh, we've counted up to 140 different species in some of the paddocks, a very, very diverse ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I like how you mentioned that there, because there there seems to be a lot of thought that, you know, planting trees is kind of the only way to really establish perennial and long-term root mass into the soil system. But like you just mentioned, these perennial grasses have the power to do, in some cases, even more carbon sequestration and put out even more root exudates to grow the microbiotic life and foster habitat for mycorrhizal fungi as well.
1: That's exactly right. And a lot of the the studies that we're doing will show that we're able to sequester more carbon with perennial grasslands being grazed by ruminants than one can in a in a forested area. And as we hear more and more about climate change and mitigating the effects of climate change, I think that, it's my hope anyway, that soon society will realize that grazing animals, on perennial uh, forage ecosystems are key to making that happen in order to take large amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere and move it into the soil where it, it becomes a cycle then. The carbon cycles, but we have way too much in the atmosphere, not enough in the soil. We need to move it back into the soil, and the way to do that is with Ruminants, grazing, perennial grasslands.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's a powerful message. I say grasslands,
1: but I mean very, very diverse forests, forbs, legumes.
0: Sure, sure. Grasslands encompasses all of those diverse species. Now what does improved soil do for the hydrology of your land? Up until now, we've mostly talked about, you know, all the life and fostering the health of the microbiotic uh, systems and cycles within the, the soil. But those are extremely connected to the hydrology as well. And you told us the Incredible story of the difference of infiltration rates in your healthier soil since you first started back in the 90s, going from over an hour for a half inch of water infiltration to now uh, less than nine seconds, or nine seconds or 16 seconds in the second round. And I would imagine that uh, that correlates directly to the um, the bulk amount of water that you can store in the soil overall. And so even with the smaller amount of rainfall that you get in comparison to other areas of the country, that would still cut down drastically on how much water you would have to bring into the system to make it viable.
1: But that's exactly right. What, what I'm really doing by focusing on a healthy soil ecosystem is building resiliency. Okay, Scientists will tell us for every 1% approximately of organic matter in the soil profile, you can hold about 20,000 gallons of water per foot of the soil profile. So when we purchased this ranch in 1991, uh, our organic matter levels on cropland were from 1.7 to 1.9%, which means we would hold less than 40,000 gallons of water Per acre in the top foot of the soil profile. Now today, my organic matter levels are from 5.3 to 7.9 percent. Mm. So what that means? Think of that. Now I can I can store up to 120,000 gallons. So three times as much, and that's only in the top foot. Now we've done some very in depth uh, monitoring on our ranch, and we've taken. Uh, soil samples four feet deep. And what we find is in many locations now, we're well aggregated down to four feet. So this uh, this summer, we're actually going to be doing some uh, soil probes at eight foot depths to see just how far down we're aggregated. Now, one of the things that farmers and ranchers and gardeners, for that matter, don't realize is... That the soil is really a subaquatic ecosystem. Biology lives in and on thin films of water between those soil aggregates. And I, I tell people, think of it as marbles in a jar. The pore spaces between those marbles is where biology lives. They live in and on thin films of water between those marbles, between those aggregates. Well, as your soil health improves, the roots of the plants can go deeper. And as they go deeper, they're pumping root exudates out into the soil. That attracts biology. So the biology is moving deeper in the soil profile also. That gives you much greater access to more water for the plants, plus more nutrients for the plants, you know? And so all of this makes an ecosystem very resilient. I tell people the story here uh, uh, in this area, we went through three very, very dry years, 2016, 17 and 18. We had uh, 5.6, 8.2 and 11.6 inches of precipitation in those three years. That's not a lot of precipitation yet I still had enough forage for my livestock. I still grew a profitable cash crop each year. I still combine crops every year, harvested them, whereas a lot of my neighbors weren't. Well, why? It's because my soils are resilient. I'm able to hold the water. The plants can access water from much greater depth in the soil profile. That puts money in my pocket. Mm. That's a good thing.
0: Well, that leads me to where I was going, exactly. And and all of these different methods, as much as they do for the ecology of your system and the wildlife and, and everything that comes along with that, the diversity also translates over into your business model and has made you so much more resilient in comparison to the farms around you. Can you tell me a little bit about how that's manifested since you've implemented these
1: methods? Sure. So... I will use my father-in-law as the example. My father-in-law grew spring wheat, barley, and a little bit of oats, three cash crops, and then he had a small herd of beef cows. Now, you compare that to me today here on this ranch. I grow a wide variety of different cash crops. I grow spring wheat, winter wheat, barley, oats, uh, sunflowers, corn, corn, forages, winter triticale, hairy vetch, cereal rye, and the list goes on. So I grow a wide variety of different cash crops. Besides that, we have beef cows, we grass-finished beef, we have a flock of sheep, we grass-finished lambs, we have uh, pastured pork, we farrow sows, and, and they're outside and the pigs are finished out on pasture. We have a flock of laying hens we run broilers, we got a few turkeys, we have a large vegetable garden, we have bees, so we have honey uh, production. We have 17 different enterprises. And by that, I mean small, the grains are just one enterprise. And then beef is an enterprise, honey is an enterprise, on and on. So I have 17 different enterprises, a myriad of different revenue streams. I really... It does not affect me hardly at all if one commodity crop goes up or down in price. That's just a small piece of the entire operation. That makes me extremely resilient to these wide. And tell me
0: about how that uh, affects your relationship with all of the subsidies being pumped into the farming sector in the United States.
1: Yes, and and uh, that's a real uh, bone of contention, so to speak, with me. I refuse to take part in any government programs. We, we refuse to take money. I'm a believer that if my business cannot stand on its own, I should not be in business. So why should the urban taxpayers pay for my inadequacies in farming and ranching? If I'm not a good enough manager to make a profit every year, I should not be in business. And that's how I look at that. And that's,
0: you know, part of the outspoken sort of critiques that I've heard from you in the past about the U.S. Farm Bill in general. Can you tell me about how, from your opinion, that disincentivizes people to really get their management in order and start to work with nature to transition their farms into more resilient ecosystems?
1: Sure. So in the United States, under the current farm program, they have a program which uh, gives farmers, not gives, but allows farmers to purchase crop insurance. Now, a part of that is what's called revenue insurance. So you take your historical proven yield for a commodity let's just use maize or corn for an example and you have your proven yield well you're able to buy up insurance on that crop up to 90 percent of your proven historical yield now the premiums are a little different the the higher insurance rate you buy the higher the premium however the government subsidizes approximately two-thirds of the cost of that insurance so you're only paying one-third well what does it happens then is that based on that revenue insurance how much money can i lock in i'm going to lock that in i know if i keep my expenses below that amount i'm going to make x amount of dollars well that limits them for diversity it limits their marketing it limits The soil health and the ecosystem function because they're planting basically the same species over and over year after year. That keeps their hands tied. Whereas you take a regenerative approach, I have the ability at any time to change my planting decisions based on markets, based on weather. I'm able to change things and adjust accordingly.
0: Yeah, that puts you in a big situation of advantage over others who are dependent on that system. And I mean, it gets to be a point of a cycle of debt, I would imagine, if uh, your overheads keep running over a certain amount and you're entirely dependent on the insurance for paying out for, for, I can only imagine, more risky practices as crops continue to fail from things like drought and weather patterns and, and climate change in general.
1: Yes, that's what happens. Realize in the United States, the vast majority of farmers and ranchers need to take out annual operating loans. And that really, really uh, ties their hands then also, because they're locked in. Oh, in order for me to get the money I need to stay in farming, the program I'm going to plant these crops that the government's going to Uh, subsidize the insurance on and 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 pay me the highest revenue insurance well you're just spinning in a vortex because the most more people that get in that the more crop that's produced the more crop produced the higher the surplus the higher the surplus the lower the price it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever Mm -hmm. so with that in mind
0: You've been a huge advocate of helping people to transition into a regenerative way of farming. And given that the deck is kind of stacked against you, if you're already well entrenched in the industrial and the subsidy model of farming in the U.S., what is some of the key advice that you've helped to give people to start to make that transition towards working with nature instead of with subsidies?
1: In the United States, there's a real crisis going on. Farmers and ranchers are making very little money. And I know it's pretty much that way globally. And so they're coming to us to learn about regenerative agriculture because they want the freedom. They said, you know, I no longer have the ability to help my son or daughter into the operation, become a part of the operation. I no longer have a retirement. You know, I'm not going to be able to retire. There's no money in this the stress is getting to me. We don't want to work with the chemicals and and everything that we do in the conventional mindset. And so that's the reason people want to change. So what me and my business partners are doing is, we have a business called Understanding Ag. Understand what it's really about. Understand how ecosystems function. Educate yourself as to these principles. And we tell them, become a price maker, not a price taker. On our ranch, my ranch, we market everything we grow ourselves. In other words, I don't take it to a grain terminal and just dump it off and take whatever price they give me. No, I'm going to set the price. I make a reasonable profit. And if nobody's willing to pay me that, I'm certainly not going to grow that or raise that that animal. You know, we're going to become price makers, not price takers. That adds profitability. It adds peace of mind. You're taking your own future into your own hands. And that's where it should be.
0: It's a real, I guess, inspiration to see how, you know, it's taken you a while to get to these steps. It's what has it been? 28 years now since you started the first no-till in 1993?
1: 94, yes. Yep. It's been a long time. You're aging me now, about 26 years.
0: (laughs) No, but I mean, though it may be aging, it's also a real testament to how resilient this model has been because you've been going against the grain for this this long. And it takes a certain amount of tenacity to do that. And um, what I'm trying to get an idea of here is through all of this experience in, in implementing these things, not necessarily one by one, but in a gradual method and and not all at once, certainly, what would you say to, to some farmer just getting started now, looking back on your own experience, what would you implement maybe first or faster in order to kind of get this kick started in a shorter amount of time?
1: That's a very good question. And what we tell producers is, okay... Regenerative Ag and these six principles are kind of like, that's your decision. You know, so what do you feel comfortable with? And I always ask people, what will allow you to sleep at night? So some people just want to try it on one field that's over the hill where none of the neighbors will see. The next person's going to be like me. We're going to try it on most of the things right along the major roads so everybody can see. That's up. What we ask them to do is take one field, a minimum of one field, and commit for five years. You're going to follow these six principles for five years on that field, 95 plus times out of 100. What happens is by year three, they're totally in. All their fields are going down this. farms And ranches that we consult on, we're able to increase profitability the very first year. There's often this notion out there, well, I'm going to go down the regenerative path, but I got to lose money a few years in order to increasing profit the very first year. Now, notice I did not say yield. I said profit. There's a huge difference between profit and yield. I will take profit over yield any day. And so we start people according to their context and their comfort and then move them forward from there.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic strategy because like you said, it's not always easy to just jump all in and uh, there's a number of different things that could be tying someone's hands from taking the steps that they want to from financial to, you know, any other obligations that they're working with or even just the idea of what other people around them will think and and their own habits that they've built up into that point and giving a roadmap of how to ease into it and I love what you said, you know, maybe commit to a five-year plan and many times they find in a much shorter period of time that this is extremely effective and they'll go with it all in. With that being said, what advice would you give to new farmers, perhaps who don't even have experience in farming yet, as to the the urgency that this sector needs to, to bring in uh, new ideas and new faces to really help this become a larger movement and to get it implemented around more places in the country?
1: Sure, very good question. So, I encourage people, the first thing is educate yourself. You know, one of the, one of the <laughs> real benefits of living in this day and age is the technology through internet, uh, YouTube videos, et cetera. We're able to learn about these things much, much faster than I could. I tell people back when I first started, I had to go to the library and look things up and read a book. Well, you don't have to do that. So the first thing is to educate yourself as to these principles, and then start by by growing a garden. Try these principles in your garden, and they work equally as well in the garden as they do large scale. Learn about them. Get to know, if you're a consumer, get to know your farmer, get to know your rancher, go out to that farm and ranch see how they're producing, the uh, growing the, the vegetables, see how they're raising the chickens or the eggs that you're going to purchase from them, you start. And you make a difference then as a consumer with your buying dollar.
0: Mm. And given that you advocate so much for that education point, can you direct some of our listeners as to where they can find, first of all, your own book, Dirt to Soil, One Family's Journey into Regenerative Agriculture, which I highly recommend, and all of the other resources that you put out yourself.
1: Sure. So my book, Dirt to Soil, is available at most bookstores, major bookstores. Or they can go on our website, which is understandingag.com. And another one is soilhealthacademy.org, O-R-G com or soilhealthacademy.org.:
0: Fantastic. Well, I really look forward to checking out some more of those resources myself. Gabe, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I've been looking forward to connecting with you for such a while. And I really appreciate you just being so generous with all of your information. It's been a real pleasure.
1: It's been a pleasure visiting with you today. Thank you.
0: Alright, thanks once again to Gabe Brown for sharing his knowledge and experience. This episode's original music comes from Dan Lebowitz, and if you'd like to have your own music featured on the show, or you just want to reach out, you can get in touch directly through info at regenerativeskills.com. Now don't forget that these episodes are just the beginning of the ongoing conversations on these topics happening on the Regenerative Skills Discord server, and the questions that we'll be exploring this week are, what potential does arable farming have in a regenerative farming future? Are there increased yields and ecological services in integrating it with things like alley cropping, agroforestry, apiculture, managed grazing rotation, and other configurations like this in your area and climate? Remember, you can always join for free through the links on the website at regenerativeskills.com where our growing community can help you find answers to your questions, solve challenges, and connect with like-minded people around the world. Now that's our show this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future. And I'll be right by your side along the way.